Coming to you all the way from Liverpool in England, we're the Super Nerds UK podcast. And you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe site. A no-setup WordPress website for your podcast and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your podcast with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now... Onto the show. Warning This episode contains details involving the deaths of young children and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. But before I get started on today's episode, I wanted to talk about Valentine's Day. A week and a half ago, a man took an Uber to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. He walked onto the campus, pulled out an AR-15, and began shooting at students in the hallways and in classrooms. He then dropped his weapon and left the school, running along with the other fleeing students, trying to blend in. He was apprehended a short time later at a nearby McDonald's. Killed in this school massacre were these 17 innocent people and I'm going to do my best that I can with the pronunciations of all of their names. 14-year-old competitive soccer player Alyssa Alhadef. 14-year-old freshman Martin Anguiano. 17-year-old promising high school swimmer Nicholas Dorette. 37-year-old assistant football coach and security monitor Aaron Feese. He left behind a wife and one daughter. 14-year-old dancer Jamie Gutenberg. 49-year-old athletics director Christopher Nixon. He had just been named athletic director of the year in 2017 by the Broward County Athletics Association. 15-year-old aspiring basketball player Luke Hoyer. 14-year-old freshman Kara Lofren, 14-year-old color guard team member Gina Montalto, choreographer Andy Morzak, 17-year-old basketball player Joaquin Oliver, 14-year-old junior reserve officer training corps member Alana Petty, 18-year-old senior Meadow Pollock, 17-year-old senior Helena Ramsey, 14-year-old trombonist Alex Schechter, 16-year-old 2018 National Merit Scholarship semifinalist Carmen Shentrup, and 15-year-old Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps member Peter Wang. I don't know what the solution is to keeping our children safe in schools, but I do know one place we can start and that is to stop ignoring the red flags. All of those warning signs that were overlooked or ignored 
my thoughts and prayers and condolences go out to all of the families and loved ones of those who lost someone in this latest tragedy. So last weekend, I brought you a different kind of tale when I told you Lacey's story. I think most of us who may have been moved by what happened to her are mostly affected by a life not realized. Lacey wasn't allowed the chance to become the mother that she dreamed of becoming. And she was so close. When that was taken from her by that man, and I don't even want to utter his name right now. As I was able to show you last week, his name need not ever be spoken when telling a story that is hers. And her unborn son, Connor, he was robbed of his life before he even had a chance to live one second in this world. Although there are so many sad and infuriating aspects of that entire story, as a parent, that is what I find to be the worst part of it all. I have a story to tell you today about a different kind of mom. A mom who did have the chance to bring children into this world four times over. Four beautiful boys, but she would eventually be the one to take them out of this world as well. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tales of Brandon, Austin, Brigham, and Matthew. I don't always like to start off a story by talking about what a tough upbringing a person has experienced in their early life, especially when they go on to eventually commit the worst, most brutal crime imaginable. I don't want to focus too much on the perpetrator or lay down too much of a sympathetic foundation for their atrocities, especially in a case such as the one I'm going to tell you today. But over the years, I have found myself becoming a bit more compassionate for those who have struggled with a long history of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, drug and alcohol addiction, and mental health issues of those who go on to commit murder. I don't ever want to excuse away murder by no means, but it is often a factor on how we perceive certain killers. A good example for me, for whom my perception has changed over time, is Eileen Wuornos. And I'm fairly certain most of you are familiar with her story. Convicted of the murder of seven men in Florida and sentenced to death, she is a woman who endured a lifetime of abuse and struggles with addiction. She was born to a single teenage mom who had a brother only 11 months before Eileen was born. And her violent father was in prison for child molestation, only to go on to commit suicide sometime later. Eileen and her brother were eventually turned over to their grandparents to be raised by them instead, who eventually adopted them. Eileen grew up thinking that they were her parents until she was 11, and when she found out, she distanced herself from them. Eileen and her brother were brutally disciplined by their grandfather, a man who was a violent alcoholic. She would be stripped and made to lie down on the bed to receive whippings for being evil, wicked, and worthless, and told repeatedly that she should have never been born. 
Eileen watched as her grandfather drowned a kitten that had scratched her, as a lesson to never trust anyone. Childhood friends recall always seeing bruises on Eileen. Her grandmother was also extremely neglectful and never attempted to intervene with her grandfather's abuse, and that drove a deep wedge between her and her grandmother. From very early, Eileen was shown that her body was an object to be possessed by another. Her grandfather had an incredibly violent ancestral relationship with her. She is also admitted to promiscuous sexual behavior with others beginning as early as age 11, even having admitted to having a sexual relationship with her own brother. She would meet with boys and in exchange for sex or sexual favors, she would be given coins and cigarettes. As an adolescent, Eileen acted out both sexually and violently. She began getting in trouble with the law, having been arrested for petty crimes. She began drinking, and eventually, she became pregnant at the age of 14. Her grandfather insisted that she give the baby up for adoption. And after having her son, she returned home to her grandfather. By this time, her grandmother had already passed away after years of alcohol abuse. But... Eileen was more out of control than ever. She was eventually kicked out of the home and managed to hitchhike her way down from Michigan to Florida, where the climate was more forgiving for living on the streets. And you know from there, Eileen ended up becoming one of the most infamous female serial killers in American history. I have little doubt that the early childhood experiences of physical and sexual abuse certainly culminated in what Eileen turned out to be. No, those are no excuses for the murders of seven men. But I certainly do not feel that putting a very, very damaged and mentally ill Eileen Warnos to death in 2002 was the appropriate punishment for her. Maybe you don't agree with me. And maybe if one of my family members was murdered by her, I might feel different. But there's something about Eileen's life that makes me feel so terribly sad for her. I am sad for her victims and their families, and I don't want to in any way diminish their loss and their pain. But I just can't help but feel differently about Eileen, knowing what I know about her early life. So with that being said, I have very, very different feelings about the person who is at the center of today's story. She too had experienced a long history of abuse and addiction, but the reasons why her story is different isn't really about that. It's about who she killed, her own children, her own four babies, dead, at the hand of their own mother. I have yet, out of 33 episodes thus far, and a handful of bonus content, told the story of a mother taking the life or the lives of her own children. I've told stories of fathers murdering their children, of children murdering their parents, 
even a sister plotting to take out her own twin. But I have yet to speak of a mother murdering her own babies until today. There's a word for this act of killing one's own child, filicide. Maternal filicide is when the mom commits it, and paternal filicide is when dad commits it. The Department of Justice has done some studies on filicide, concluding that mothers were responsible for a higher share of children killed during infancy, while fathers are more likely to be responsible for the murders of their children over the age of eight. And of those, 52% of the children killed by their mothers were male, while 57% of the children killed by their fathers were male. Parents are responsible for 61% of children under the age of five being murdered. On average, there are 450 children murdered by their parents every year in the United States. 450 children killed by their own parents. I could hardly believe what I was reading when I saw that statistic. And filicide is exactly what Susan Eubanks committed four times over on October 26, 1997, in the city of San Marcos, California, located in the northern region of San Diego County. Eubanks had spent much of the afternoon drinking and abusing prescription drugs, a habit dating back to her youth, having experienced some of the same abusive circumstances I described earlier in talking about Eileen Wernos. She came from a household wrought with alcoholism, as well as physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, according to her, when she was a child. Likely in an effort to escape her abusive home, she married at a very young age, and she ended up having two failed marriages when all was said and done that resulted in the births of four boys. Brandon from her first marriage, and then Austin, Brigham, and Matthew from her second her second marriage to Eric Eubanks, by all accounts, had seemed to be relatively stable up until the point she became injured at her job, which required her to have surgery. During her recovery, she began to abuse prescription medications and alcohol. She eventually would lose her job, and this led to a strain in her marriage to Eric. There began a recurring pattern of breaking up and reconciliation between Eubanks and her husband. But by the fall of 1997, the couple decided to end their marriage and initiate divorce proceedings. Eric moved out of their home near the end of September. Eubanks, however, was not exactly faithful in her marriage to Eric. She had maintained an intimate, on-again, off-again relationship with a man named Renee Dodson, whom she met in 1994. When Eric moved out, Renee moved right in. But oddly, between October 13th and October 19th, 1997, Renee left the home and Eric moved back in. And then suddenly, Eric moved out again and Renee moved back in. It's really strange, so I hope you're able to keep all of this straight. Let's review. Eric is the second husband, father to the three youngest children. Renee is the boyfriend, and he is not a father to any of the children. And the first husband, his name is John, 
He is the father of the one oldest child, Brandon. Okay, so all the while, Eubanks has her four sons to take care of. And this revolving door of relationships with these two men. She's unable to care for her children on her own. So she finds herself financially dependent on either Eric or Renee or both of them. She needs somebody to help keep her above water. And at the same time, she's one of those parents that places this enormous burden of taking care of her three youngest children, who are ages seven, six, and four at the time. All of that responsibility is often placed upon her 14-year-old, Brandon. And it is not uncommon in a family that is riddled with chaos and instability such as this that the oldest child is tasked with taking on the parental responsibilities of taking care of the younger children, as mom is unable to do so because of her addiction. It would not take long for Renee to realize that he's found himself in a very toxic situation with Eubanks. Dating her in a casual capacity is one thing, but living with the woman is something quite different, and it was not easy. The couple fought a lot, Renee often leaving the home, having to avoid any further confrontation. In the middle of October, Eubanks had gone to a local hardware store to purchase deadbolts for her house. The clerk noted that Eubanks was very agitated and angry and said that she had told her that her boyfriend had broken the locks on the door and she was having to buy new ones so he could not get into her home or get his effing stuff. The clerk apparently knew the couple, and Eubanks further told her to make sure that if she saw Renee again, to let him know that she just purchased bullets at a nearby store, and one of them had his name on it. She then turned to one of her little boys that was with her at the time and said, Mommy did buy the bullets, didn't she? Didn't she? Well, it wasn't the first time Eubanks had threatened his life, and the lives of her children as well as you will come to find. So, on the afternoon of October 26th, 1997, Eubanks wanted to go out with Renee to a local bar and watch some football. Brandon, of course, was left to stay home to keep his eye on the siblings, as well as one of Eubanks' nephews, whom she was raising since the death of her brother. The couple ordered a pitcher of beer, and they were soon joined by another couple. But Eubanks did not want the woman to sit with them because of a previous confrontation they had had when the woman criticized Eubanks for talking badly about Renee behind his back. Things became heated between the two women once again, so Renee suggested that he and Eubanks leave and go to a different bar because he could see that she was becoming more and more agitated and belligerent. As they left, Eubanks continued arguing with Renee, as she was feeling as though he had taken the other woman's side in the confrontation. The couple got into their vehicle, and as he was driving, Eubanks proceeded to slap Dotson across the face numerous times, all the while fighting with him and shouting at him. Instead of continuing on to another bar, Renee decided to drive home. Upon arriving at their house, 
Eubanks and Rene continued to argue in their bedroom. Rene finally decided enough was enough. He told Eubanks that he was no longer interested in staying in that relationship and that he wanted to leave and he had actually had plans to move to Hawaii. As soon as he said that, Eubanks slapped him across the face again, grabbed his keys, and blocked him from exiting the room. She also ripped out the telephone cords from the wall. In a last-ditch effort to placate Eubanks, Renee did what he could to calm her down, and eventually the couple would end up having sex. A little while later, Renee told her that he was going to go watch some television in the living room, but he'd actually had other plans. While Eubanks was in another part of the house and she was kind of dozing off, Renee left. He jogged over to a nearby gas station and called the sheriff's department. He requested that a deputy be sent to the residence to stand by so he could retrieve his belongings from the home as well as his keys and his vehicle. In the meantime, while Eubanks and Renee were in the midst of their argument, her oldest son, Brandon, had gone to a payphone to call his mom's best friend, Kathy. He asked her if she would please come pick him and his little brothers up because they were really scared of the fighting that was going on between his mom and Renee. Brandon was very protective of his three baby brothers and he did not want them exposed to the fighting. Kathy told Brandon to go home and just to see if things were calming down, and if he still felt like he needed her to pick them up, to call her back and she would come and get them. A short time later, Eubanks herself called Kathy back. She begged Kathy to please come and take the boys. When speaking to Eubanks, she could tell that she was very upset and highly aggravated at the situation, but she didn't seem to think that she was that intoxicated or under the influence of any kind of drugs or alcohol. Eubanks told Kathy that she was afraid that Renee would call the police and that if the police were to come to her home, that they would take the children away and they would be separated from one another. Kathy agreed and told Eubanks that she would come by and pick up the boys, but she never left her home to get them. You see, what Eubanks didn't know was she had been allowing Eric, the father of her three youngest boys, to stay at her house until he was able to find a place to live. So Kathy decided to not get the boys because she was afraid that if Eubanks were to find out Eric was staying at her home temporarily, that she would no longer allow Brandon to visit her son. The boys were really good friends. If she happened to see Eric staying at her house, if or when she were to come and pick the boys back up, she didn't want Eubanks to get the impression that by allowing Eric to stay at her house, that she was picking sides, because this was something that would infuriate Eubanks. Deputy Sheriff Daniel Deese picked Renee up at the gas station from which he called to get assistance going back to Eubanks' home. As they were approaching her house, she was in the process of carrying Renee's tools away from his vehicle and into the garage. 
He worked in construction, so everything he needed was in that vehicle. It also had two flat tires, a shattered windshield, and both the headlights had been bashed in. When Deputy Deese ordered Eubanks to drop the tools, she immediately became confrontational and began accusing Renee of sexually assaulting her. When Deputy Deese threatened to have her arrested, she set the tools down and went inside. While Renee was putting his tools into the deputy's patrol car, Eubanks stormed back outside yelling, I've been screwed by men my whole life. I've been beaten. I've been raped. In the meantime, Kathy, having grown anxious because of the phone calls from Brandon and his mother, had gotten in touch with Eric to let him know about the concerning phone calls she'd received. She wanted Eric to try and go over there and check on the children. But the problem was, Eubanks had taken a restraining order out against him and he wasn't allowed to be near the home. But he did try to go over to the house to see if he could get close enough to find out what exactly was going on. He saw the deputy's vehicle there, so he decided to keep his distance until he saw it drive away. As the vehicle was passing him, he waved them down and they stopped. All the while, Eubanks is still outside the home, irate and screaming. Eric soon finds out that Renee is being kicked out of the home, and knowing all too well what Eubanks is like, he offered to lend a hand to Renee, an unlikely ally in this whole ordeal. Eric offered to drive Renee away from Eubanks' home. They loaded up Renee's stuff into Eric's car, and they left. So, not only is Eubanks feeling rejected and betrayed by Renee, seeing her estranged husband and her now ex-boyfriend driving away together, she perceived this as a conspiratorial move between the two of them to plot against her. The fact was, Eric understood what Renee was having to deal with when it came to Eubanks. He genuinely wanted to help the guy get away. Back inside the home, Eubanks was becoming unhinged. She made a call to her oldest son, Brandon's grandfather. She then called her first ex-husband, Brandon's dad, John, who was living in Texas at the time. She told him that the police had been to the house and that they were investigating a fight that she had had with her boyfriend. She told him that she had slashed his tires, smashed his windshield, broken the headlights, and poured sugar into the gas tank, and that she was afraid that Child Protective Services would come and remove the children from the home. She even told him that she needed him to tell their son that he needed to stick by her on this one, even if it meant lying to the police. But what John didn't know, what I suppose nobody really would have been able to know, was that Eubanks was completely spun out of control. She was on the brink of exploding into a firestorm of unimaginable violence. As she was plotting her revenge against these men, she had felt completely betrayed her. She began by writing letters to the fathers of her boys. She basically blamed them for leaving her 
and to get ready to lose what they loved most in this world. Eubanks, blinded by rage, was preparing for the unthinkable. When Eric arrived back at Kathy's home, a little after 6 p.m. that afternoon, he asked her to listen to a voicemail that he had just received from Eubanks. All she said was, say goodbye. Around 6.30 p.m., Eric called the sheriff's office and asked to speak to Deputy Dees. He wasn't available right away, but he did call back around 7 p.m. that evening. Eric told Deputy Dees about the ominous message Eubanks had left on his voicemail and that he was worried because he knew that she had a gun at the house. Deputy Dees instructed Eric to call and put in a request for a welfare check at the defendant's residence. But... It would be too late for anyone to have done anything to stop Susan Eubanks from doing what she had set out to do. Hurt the men that she felt had wronged her the only way that she could. She started with her oldest, Brandon. She had to start with him because otherwise, as protective as he was of his little brothers, and he was quite athletic, he would have been able to likely overpower his mom and stop her from carrying out her plan. With her five-shot thirty-eight caliber revolver loaded, she approached 14-year-old Brandon, who was sitting in the living room, and put the gun up to his temple and shot him. And then she shot him a second time in the neck from a few inches away. She then went into the bedroom where her three other sons were in their beds. With the revolver less than 12 inches away from her son, Austin's head, who was in the top bunk, she shot the seven-year-old right between the bridge of his nose and his left eye. There were a couple of other shots in his direction, which investigators surmised were shots that she had fired at him, but missed, likely because he was up there on the top bunk trying to dodge the bullets his mother was firing at him. This caused Eubanks to have to empty the revolver of its bullet casings and reload the gun with five more rounds of ammunition. All the while, her two younger boys and her nephew are watching her do this. When she was done loading her gun, she put the gun a couple of inches away from her six-year-old son, Brigham's head, and shot him once on the right side of his head near his ear. And then with the muzzle of the revolver pressed firmly against him, she shot him a second time in the back of the head. Four-year-old Matthew was found by the foot of the bed in a fetal position with the gunshot wound that entered the top of his head. She held the gun so close to him, there were stippling marks on his face. Susan Eubanks took her sons out of this world, just like she said she would. And she did it in the same exact order that she had brought them into the world. She spared the life of her nephew, her brother's son, she had no ill will towards him. 
The killings of Brandon, Austin, Brigham, and Matthew were for the sole purpose of causing their dad's pain. And then, in a half-hearted attempt at ending her own life, Eubanks turned the gun on herself and shot herself in the abdomen. And then she called 911, probably wanting to make sure she saved her own life. If she'd really wanted to kill herself, she'd have shot herself in the head, just like she did to her four boys. She obviously knew how to kill somebody. Paramedics and law enforcement arrived and found Eubanks wounded and her four children dead. And her six-year-old nephew, that poor little boy, unharmed in bed with the blankets pulled up to his chin. Authorities found five handwritten notes on Eubanks' bedroom floor, all of them written by her. One of them was to Eric, the father of the three youngest victims. In it, she wrote, You betrayed me. You kept a diary, and you and Renee Dodson conspired against me. I've lost everyone I've ever loved, and now it's time for you to do the same. In her note, she also told him that he could use any money from her worker's disability case to bury the kids and to find your rainbow, Anna May, I'm sure, referring to a woman that she suspected that he had been involved with. In her note to Renee, she wrote that he was the biggest liar to date that she knew and to stay on crystal meth and let your 37-year-old ass move back in with your mom and dad and to get back with Pam and or Sherry because they were in his class. She ended her note by saying to him, See ya, ha ha ha. Then there was also a letter to Brandon's father, John, that said, I know you'll hate me forever, but I can't let Brandon live without his brothers, so I did what I did. She wrote that she had been strong for 25 years, and she was tired of all the fighting and hurting. She ended her note to him by telling him that Renee had effed her all up. She also wrote notes to her niece and to her sister, apologizing for her actions. To her niece, Eubanks explained, I know what I'm doing is going to hurt you tremendously, but I can't and have no desire to go on. To her sister, she wrote that she was tired of being strong and that things were getting way out of hand. She also included her birth date and Matthew's birth date and asked her sister to make sure that the two of them would be buried in the same casket. Susan Eubanks went on trial in 1999 for the quadruple murders of her sons. She wasn't going to deny that she'd killed him. Of that, there was no question. The trial was going to be a matter of determining whether Eubanks was guilty of the four counts of capital murder, a charge that could land her on California's death row. And there are a couple of circumstances in this case that made her eligible for death. One was the fact that there were multiple victims. Another is the age of the victims. 
and yet another is the cruelty of the crimes committed. Conversely, if her attorney can convince the jury that she was in a drunken and drug-fueled fog, she could be found guilty of only second-degree murder, meaning her sentence could be life in prison with the possibility of parole. But the death penalty would be definitely off the table if she were convicted of the lesser charge. Eubanks herself would not take the stand, and all the defense could do was raise the possibility that she wasn't in her right state of mind when she did what she did. Her attorney presented evidence through the testimony of a board-certified doctor specializing in addiction and forensic psychiatry. He testified that because Eubanks received infusions of saline and other fluids while in the ambulance after having shot herself in the abdomen, that it would have affected the alcohol content of the blood drawn from her at the hospital. So, although the blood sample revealed a 0.07% blood alcohol content, a toxicologist had calculated that the defendant's blood alcohol content at the time of the murders was 0.09%. He testified that at the time of the murders, her blood alcohol content was actually closer to 0.19% when she killed her children. He also testified that the infusions given to her would have similarly affected the levels of Valium found in her blood. He opined that the alcohol and drug levels in her blood at the time of the shooting would have produced a very significant effect on her brain, and this would have affected her emotions, perceptions, judgment, and other higher brain functions. So that was basically her defense, that she was drunker and higher than her toxicology reports reflected, and this is some sort of excuse for what she'd done. The prosecution did call a rebuttal expert witness to refute the defense's expert's conclusions anyway. They called the toxicologist who had examined Eubanks' blood alcohol content at 0.09% at the time of the murders. She testified that she based her calculations on a formula published in recognized literature and that she formed her opinion that the liquid intravenous infusions into the body do not affect blood alcohol or drug concentrations in the manner that the defense expert was trying to claim. Incidentally, investigators did recover more than 50 bottles of prescription medications in the defendant's house after the murders. So there's really no disputing that Susan Eubanks did indeed have a drinking and drugging problem. But is it enough of a problem to see your way out of a capital murder conviction? Not so much. On August 18, 1999, it took the jury only two hours to convict Eubanks, by that time 35 years old, of the first-degree murder of her four sons in that fit of rage. Like I said, she never denied killing her boys, but now it was going to be up to her attorneys to somehow try and save her from death row during the penalty phase of the trial. Eubanks was slumped over the defense table as the jury read its verdict as members of both of her ex-husband's families looked on from the gallery. Dale Eubanks, 
grandfather of the three youngest boys, spoke to the media after the verdict, stating that their family was so grateful for the jury and that they were such wonderful boys, the kind of grandsons that every grandparent would want. The deputy district attorney who prosecuted the case described Eubanks as callous and cold and that she was fueled by anger that she could not control the men in her life anymore. So she had to somehow make them suffer, even if that meant taking away the lives of four innocent children. One of the most damning pieces of evidence in the case were those five notes that she left. That was proof that this was a planned and deliberate act. The prosecutor reminded the court that her note stated, quote, I've lost everything I've ever loved. Now it's time for you to do the same, unquote. During the penalty phase, the prosecution started off with the crime scene reconstructionist. For the court, he described in graphic detail how Eubanks went about the killing of her children, one at a time. He testified to the jury that she shot Brandon twice in the living room first. She then shot Austin once, and then seemed to have fired twice in the direction of either Matthew or Austin, but missed. He then told the jury that Eubanks needed to reload her revolver at that point, while Brigham and Matthew watched her. And then she shot Brigham twice, fired one shot between Brigham and Matthew, and then shot Matthew once. And then she shot herself. And that would account for all ten bullets from that five-shot revolver. The prosecution then called Larry Shoebridge, a man who had been romantically involved and living together with Eubanks in the late 80s. He testified that sometime in 1989, an old girlfriend had contacted him, and this sent Eubanks into a rage. She responded by putting a gun to his head and telling him that she could do whatever she wanted and she could kill him if she wanted to. After that happened, Larry decided he could no longer live with Eubanks and that he needed to leave. But because he was so fearful of how she would react to his decision, he moved out one day after she'd gone to work. When she discovered what he had done, she tracked him down and found out where he was living. She drove to his house and got out of her car, confronting him and screaming at him, and also attempted to attack a female friend of his who was present at the time. She eventually drove off, peeling out her tires as she left. Eubanks's oldest son's relatives and a friend of his testified as to the impact his death had on their lives. His paternal grandmother testified to two incidents in which she came to suspect Eubanks was abusive to Brandon. Also called were some of Brandon's, Austin's, Brigham's, and Matthew's teachers and coaches who testified as to the impact their deaths had on them. In an effort to save Eubanks's life, the defense presented evidence of a chaotic and troubled childhood, that her mother and stepfather were both alcoholics who constantly fought and had a turbulent relationship riddled with abuse and infidelity. Eubanks allegedly endured physical abuse at the hands of her mother, who punished her by slapping her and dragging her by her hair 
up until her mother died when she was only eight years old in a house fire. Eubanks was then left to bounce from relative to relative, including an aunt who was also abusive to her. Sometimes Eubanks was left with her stepfather, who resided in a ramshackle trailer where he spent most of his time drinking pretty heavily. The defense was also able to present testimony from relatives as well as former co-workers of Eubanks, who claimed her children were her number one priority, that they were very important to her. They described Eubanks as proud of her kids, and that she was not only a caring mom, but she was a good friend and an excellent employee. They testified that Eubanks suffered a tortured childhood, but that she herself was a loving parent who made a terrible mistake in a haze of drinking and drugs and implored with the jury to not impose the death penalty. They were even able to call to the stand the children's pediatrician, who testified that the defendant regularly brought her sons in for their checkups and medical problems. Well, to that I say, that's all fine and good, but that's like normal parenting stuff. That doesn't make you exceptional because you took your kids to the pediatrician. Parents do that all the time, and you don't get a pass because you think that makes you special. Lady, you shot and killed your kids. That's why your life is teetering at death's door. I'd rather hear this woman get up before the court, take responsibility for this, own what she did, apologize to all the people she's caused all this pain for what she did to her own children, show some remorse, admit that she made the worst decision that she could have possibly made, admit that she doesn't want to die and beg for her own life. I don't know if that would have worked for her or not, but if it were me, I'd likely be more moved by that as opposed to your kid's doctor telling me that you used to bring them in for their medical checkups or vaccinations or whatever, that you used to care about them, sort of. Man, this lady makes my blood boil. And it was like I was telling you at the beginning of this episode. I can feel sympathy for someone who's committed the ultimate sin. I really can. But there's something about this Susan Eubanks that I can't seem to get there. Even if you were to compare Eubanks' case to the case of Andrea Yates, remember her? She was that Texas mom who confessed to drowning her five children in the bathtub on June twentieth, two 2001. Let's talk about her for a few minutes. I think it's worth the comparison. Andrea Yates had been struggling severely with postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. When she was initially charged with the killings, the county district attorney sought the death penalty. It was her case that brought about a more direct look at what it means to be legally sane, as well as the testing procedures to determine sanity when considering charging a defendant with capital murder who has a long and documented history of mental illness. She was initially convicted of capital murder, but after the guilty verdict and before sentencing, the state of Texas withdrew its intentions to seek the death penalty when it came to light that one of the state's expert psychiatric witnesses had provided false testimony. Andrea was subsequently sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 40 years. However, that verdict was overturned on appeal. Four years later, Yates pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, and at that point she was granted bail on the condition that she be committed to a mental health institution, which is where she stayed until trial. She eventually went on trial again, and a jury found her not guilty by reason of insanity. She was committed at first to the North Texas State Hospital, 
where she received medical treatment. Eventually, she was moved to the low-security Kerrville State Hospital. But here's the thing about Andrea Yates. She struggled with mental health issues even from the time she was a teenager. She suffered from bulimia and depression. She spoke to a friend about suicide when she was 17. She graduated from high school in 1982 and went on to study nursing, and from 1986 until 1994, she worked as a registered nurse. In 1989, she met Rusty Yates. They married in 1993 and began planning a family, announcing that they would, quote, seek to have as many children as nature allowed, unquote. Their first son was born in 1994, and soon after, Rusty took a job offer in Florida, and they relocated from their four-bedroom house in Texas to a small trailer in Florida. In short order, they were on their third child, and following that, they purchased a small motorhome and moved back to Texas. After their fourth child, Andrea Yates became depressed. Rusty found her shaking and chewing on her fingers one day, and then the next, she attempted suicide by overdosing on pills. She was admitted to the hospital and prescribed antidepressants. Andrea was released, but soon began begging Rusty to let her die, even once holding a knife up to her neck. She was hospitalized again, but again, given a cocktail of medications, including some antipsychotic drugs. Her condition improved markedly, she seemed to be doing okay, and she continued to be prescribed these medications. Rusty finally got rid of that motorhome and moved the family into a house for the sake of her mental health, and she seemed to stabilize. But it was only a few months later that Andrea suffered a nervous breakdown, which led to two more suicide attempts and two more psychiatric hospitalizations, at which point she was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. Her psychiatrist strongly urged her and her husband to stop having children because doing so would lead to more future psychotic depression. However, the couple conceived their fifth child approximately seven weeks after she was discharged from the hospital. At that point, Andrea stopped taking her antipsychotics in March of 2000 and gave birth to their fifth and final child in November of 2000. Andrea again appeared to be doing okay until her father passed away in March of 2001. She again stopped taking her medications and began cutting herself and reading the Bible feverently. She also became so despondent, she stopped feeding her infant and soon became hospitalized again, but in short order was treated and released. On May 3, 2001, she had deteriorated so badly that she was nearly in a catatonic state. That day would be the first time that she filled that bathtub. She would later confess that she had intended to drown her children that day, but changed her mind. She was hospitalized again the next day, but her psychiatrist came to the determination that she was probably suicidal and filled the tub to kill herself. And we all know that that didn't happen that way. She continued to be under the care of the psychiatrist who deemed her to be suicidal. He made it clear that she needed to be supervised around the clock and that she, under no circumstances, be left alone with the children. But on June twentieth, two 2001, her husband went against the doctor's orders and left the children in Andrea's care. 
His mother, the children's grandmother, was scheduled to arrive an hour after he left. But it was in that hour that Andrea drowned all five of her children. So the point is that even Andrea Yates, as much as I hate that she killed her babies in that bathtub, her husband and her family knew that she struggled with mental health issues and postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. She tried to get help. She wasn't supposed to be left alone with her kids that day that she did what she did, and her children paid the ultimate price. But she had a very long-standing and ongoing history of severe mental issues, and our justice system worked as it should in her case, at least that's my opinion. She was not punished with life in prison or the death penalty because of it. She's receiving the treatment that she had so desperately needed. But Susan Eubanks? Eh. I'm not seeing the same struggles with the same kinds of severe and definitive mental health issues as Andrea Yates had. I don't know, maybe Eubanks had a terrible upbringing. Maybe she fought addiction and alcoholism. She clearly had anger management issues. But what is clear to me is that she killed her children in order to hurt and seek revenge on their fathers. I don't exactly know why Andrea killed her kids. I'm under the impression that there were some religious overtones related to her delusions, and those were the driving forces that compelled her to end their lives, with some sort of altruistic reasons attached to it. Both of these women killed their children. I guess I could best sum up my feelings like this. I very, very strongly dislike what Andrea Yates did, but I very, very strongly dislike Susan Eubanks. I don't know how the community Andrea lived in and now lives in feels about her. I was under the impression at the time that this happened that she was a very strongly detested woman. But I tend to think that the stigma of mental illness has somewhat eased over the years, and the realities of postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis are being taken much, much more seriously these days. At least, I hope so. And I'm sorry I got sidetracked like this. I hope you've noticed that I've made a concerted effort to try and stay on track much, much more than I used to. So, back to Susan Eubanks. Despite the fact that she used to take her children to their pediatrician for their regular checkups, it seems that that just wasn't quite enough of a mitigating factor in her efforts to stay off of California's death row, as she was sentenced to death for the murders of her four young boys. There are currently 22 women on California's death row, including Susan Eubanks. Women's death row is located at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. A couple of our past defendants from past episodes were or are still being housed at the same prison, including Marjorie Noller from Episode 9 and Gina Hahn from Episode 10. The last woman to be put to death in California was Elizabeth Ann Duncan, also known as Ma Duncan. You may have seen her story on Investigation Discovery's show Deadly Women. She was convicted of hiring two men to murder her daughter-in-law, Olga Duncan, who was seven months pregnant at the time. She was put to death in California's gas chamber at San Quentin State Prison on August 8, 1962. I do have a bit more time, and I wanted to talk about the death penalty in California, only because I find it to be really fascinating. 
I'm going to put this out there right now. I'm on the fence about the death penalty. Sometimes when I hear a particular case, I can't help but feel like some people deserve that. But at the same time, I do feel conflicted about the taking of a person's life by our government. In California, people who are sentenced to death tend to sit on death row for 25 years or more. It seems like as it stands now, a person is more likely to die of natural causes than to ever be sent to the death chamber. And I don't know what kind of message that sends to criminals or what kind of a deterrent that really is if it's truly meant to be one. There are currently 747 people on California's death row. Of those, 126 of those cases involve torture before murder. 173 of those murdered children, and 44 of them murdered police officers. From 1778 until 1972, when capital punishment was struck down, California carried out 709 executions. And once California eliminated the death penalty, 105 inmates who had been sentenced to it were spared, including, as you know, Charles Manson, as well as a man who assassinated Robert F. Kennedy. But within a few months, voters passed Proposition 17, which reinstated the death penalty in California. And ever since then, hundreds of death sentences have been handed down, but only 13 executions have been carried out, and the last one being in 2006. California voters have since rejected two initiatives to repeal the death penalty in 2012 and again in 2016. And as a matter of fact, voters adopted another proposal in 2016 to expedite the appeals process and to try to have the death sentences actually be carried out. And I just checked pending execution dates, and I don't see any scheduled for California anytime in the near future. Ohio, on the other hand, has a whole bunch of them scheduled. So, between 1967 and 1992, for 25 years, California didn't execute anyone until killer Robert Alton Harris was put to death for murdering two teenage boys in San Diego. In his case, there were four stays of executions issued by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which caused Harris's execution to be delayed. Finally, the United States Supreme Court stepped in and vacated all of his stays, as well as prohibited the federal court from staying his execution any longer. They ruled that these delays were abusive to the inmate and were interfering with the process of the justice system. Then, in 1993, California went from using the gas chamber to using lethal injection, but it was still a choice at the time, and the condemned was given the option. A year later, lethal injection completely replaced the use of the gas chamber in California. So, like I said... Since the death penalty was reinstated in California over the last 31 years or so, only 13 people have been put to death, but 56 people have died while awaiting execution from other causes, and of those, 14 of them took their own lives. Since 2006, the state of California has been in a legal battle over the use of lethal injection as a method of execution. You see, while Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor, Two high-profile killers were executed in a period of less than five weeks, Stanley Tukey Williams and Clarence Ray Allen. But a month later, in February of 2006, 
the court stepped in and blocked the next execution because of a lawsuit filed in regards to the use of lethal injection, raising the concern that if the three-dug procedure were to somehow go wrong, it could cause the condemned a great deal of pain and suffering, which is a violation of the constitutional right protecting individuals from cruel and unusual punishment. So there's basically been a moratorium on executions in California ever since. But with recent legislation to eliminate the death penalty in California having not passed, and most recently voters passing legislation to expedite the appeals process, it seems like it's only going to be a matter of time before the dates start getting set. And that goes for Susan Eubanks as well, as all of her appeals have been rejected and her sentence upheld. She's appealed several times, including that some evidence shouldn't have been admitted in the trial and a spattering of legal errors, but each time the appellate judges ruled that despite any minor errors, the jury would have sentenced her to death anyway. The clock isn't ticking for her yet, but if you ask me, I don't think she or anyone on death row in California have anything to worry about anytime soon. As it stands under the current California death penalty system, it's highly likely that none of them will ever be carried out because the system is constantly clogged with delays when it comes to post-conviction counsel, along with the tremendous backlog in the Supreme Court having to review all of California's death penalty convictions. According to the California Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice Review, California has the longest amount of time between the defendant being sentenced to death and the scheduled date of execution, and that that is the longest of any state in the union that continues to apply the death penalty in sentencing. Has your home state or country outlawed the death penalty? I would like to know how you feel about it. What do you think of Susan Eubanks? Is she a murderer deserving of the death penalty? For me, she's one of those who has a special place in hell reserved just for her. And I'm not really bothered by having her spend the rest of her life on death row. I can't imagine it's a walk in the park. And maybe I need to do a bonus episode about what it's like living on death row. I'd personally like to take a closer look at that. Will Susan ever make that final bus ride to San Quentin State Prison? That remains to be seen as the state of California continues to struggle with this stance on the death penalty. And with that, I will bring this episode of California Dreaming to a close. I wanted to look for something different this week when I came across this story of Susan Eubanks. Last weekend, I told you the story of Lacey Rocha. I took that from a different approach. The feedback I got was 99% positive. There were a few listeners who found the story to be unsettling, and I get that. My husband felt the same way. I just got that idea in my head and I couldn't seem to let it go. And thinking about Lacey and her never being able to have experienced motherhood got me thinking about some of the parents out there who we've heard terrible stories about, who've been given the gift of children but take it for granted. Or even worse, do something like what Susan Eubanks had done. And if you enjoyed this story, or Lacey's, it would mean a lot to me if you would head over to iTunes and leave a review. I appreciate your feedback, and not all of my reviews are great. 
And if you're listening and you happen to find my voice annoying or unlistenable or just a big joke, you don't have to leave me a review because those have already been made. If you hate the show, feel free to not leave a review and move along. I get it. The show isn't for everyone. But I am so very happy and humbled with those of you who join me every week. You are the only ones that matter anyways, and I can't thank you enough for all of your love and support of the show. Please join me on Facebook where we discuss each new episode every week. Feel free to post your comments and feedback about the crimes that we cover or whatever you feel like posting, news, interesting stories, current events, pet threads, or if you have other podcast recommendations, or if you host a show, you're welcome to share and discuss. You can also follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming has also created a Patreon. A little over a week ago, I posted the story of Retea Parsons, a story I found out of Nova Scotia, Canada that was often referred to when I was researching the episode about Audrey Pot. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access all of California Dreaming's bonus content. I am hoping by the end of the year that I can be making the show full time, and with all of your continued support, I might just be able to make that a reality. But if you can't do that, you can help by leaving reviews and mentioning the shows to others that you think may enjoy it as well. And thank you again for all of your support. California Dreaming has found a home on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We have joined forces with an amazing group of podcast shows and some wonderful hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 410 Owned, and Film Roast. You can find us all on www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And you know what else? We have also launched the Orbital Jigsaw Podience Facebook group. All of us from Orbital Jigsaw are there, along with a bunch of other hosts from some of your favorite shows and some of our biggest and best podcast listeners and fans. It's more than just talking about our shows, but rather it's an interactive group where we share ideas, articles, and news about all things podcast and social media related, and much more. It's a fun place to get new ideas and share your experiences both as a host and a listener and find out what's working for you and what hasn't worked. It's a supportive, inclusive, drama-free group. Search Orbital Jigsaw Podience, spelled P-O-D-I-E-N-C-E, and request to join. Also on www.orbitaljigsaw.com, you can find the links to the merchandise store. You can get your California Dreaming t-shirt or phone case or tote bag. Every purchase supports the creation of this show. Thank you again for joining me for this 34th episode of California Dreaming. And until next time, as always, sweet dreams.